A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on this week's podcast, Kate Andrews laments how trust is hurting the free market cause. Anthony Whitehead explains the arrogance, or so he says, of the new environmental activist movement Tire Extinguishers. And finally, Michael Simmons reads his notes on barcodes. Up first, Kate Andrews. In theory, I should be delighted about the Liz Truss project. She is saying the things I've been arguing for years, talking not just about lower taxes, but about basic liberty and how it relates to everyday life. She's passionate about these ideas, and sincere. I remember watching her deliver a rallying cry, a salute to the quote, Airbnb-ing, Deliveroo-eating, Uber-riding freedom fighters. This was just over three years ago when she was a treasury minister. Her speeches were getting punchier and her one-liners becoming newsworthy and memorable. She was turning into one of the most recognizable faces of classical liberalism in Britain, a development which clearly delighted her. Truss asked for this job. I don't mean the job of party leader or prime minister, though she asked for that too. I mean the job of the UK's free market revolutionary. It's too early to say with confidence where this all went wrong, but I suspect it can be traced back to the problems with her changing ideology even before she was elected leader. My worries about a trust premiership started during the leadership race, when it became clear that fiscal discipline was not going to play a role in her campaign. She wanted tax cuts and wouldn't wait. Far from cutting down the magic money tree, she seemed keen to water it. My concern at the time was that fiscal responsibility would slowly die. Instead, we seem to have witnessed a sudden fiscal explosion that may yet take the free market movement down with it. Free market ideas can be tricky to make because they're often counterintuitive. Lower tax rates, for example, can actually increase the tax take. Using the private sector can offer deliver better, more extensive coverage for what we consider to be public services. Tolerating the rich can be the price you pay for helping the poor. These are ideas easily caricatured by the left as voodoo economics or just outright finality, which makes it all the more important that they are explained and implemented thoughtfully. A war of words is a certainty and anyone fighting that war needs to be ready, as Margaret Thatcher understood. It is no coincidence that the most successful reformers of the past half century were well-versed in how to argue and how to win people over. Thatcher carried Friedrich Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty around in her handbag. Ronald Reagan became a pupil of Washington, D.C.'s Heritage Foundation think tank, which helped to guide his successful privatizations and tax reform. Truss, at one stage, seemed to follow this example. Her close relationship with the U.K. think tanks over the past decade not only saw her engage with the ideas, but also write free market public policy proposals under her own name. But she was always preaching to the converted— to be in the arena, to explain that trickle-down economics doesn't exist and never has, this is a necessary condition for any successful reform. They say power corrupts. I think perhaps it gives you amnesia, because there was a time not too long ago when trust was well-versed in free market policy and seemed to understand economic reality, that the markets don't respond like an audience at Tory party conference. Markets need, we all need, to know there is a plan. 
for her to blame the caustic market reaction to her borrow-and-spend mini-budget on left-wing whinging is simply to be in denial. Only four weeks in, her premiership risks causing serious damage to the free market cause. After the humiliating reversal over the abolition of the 45p tax rate, proper tax reform may now be off the table completely. Policy started dying, or rather being killed off even before she was elected leader. The decision to rush out plans for regional pay boards during the leadership race, and U-turn on it hours later, delayed necessary discussions of performance-related pay in the public sector for at least a decade. What decent but sloppily implemented policy will be axed next? At this rate, Trust will leave office with the country convinced that we actually have an oversupply of homes, with plans in place to bulldoze a few. This is all a fatal combination of miscalculation and hubris. Trust and her chancellor, Quasi Quartain, clearly thought the markets would speak their language and fund their tax cuts. They thought their confrontational attitude towards the UK's financial institutions would go down a treat. They were wrong on both counts, but these were bad assumptions. Having spent my 20s working tirelessly to promote the nuances of free enterprise, growth-maximizing policies, I am horrified and infuriated to see the words growth plan plastered across an economic plan that paid less lip service to fiscal discipline than a Gordon Brown budget. Having spent my 20s working tirelessly to promote the nuances of free enterprise, growth-maximizing policies, I am horrified and infuriated to see the words growth plan plastered across an economic plan that paid less lip service to fiscal discipline than a Gordon Brown budget. Some on the left have the audacity to claim that real socialism has never been tried. They insist that a socialist utopia could still be achieved if only it was done in the right way. Starvation and gulags only spring up, they say, because the process goes awry. Free marketeers like to point out the absurdities in this argument, that the inputs of socialism, a heavy-handed state, brute force, guarantee its ugly outputs. But should we not be more aware of our own vulnerabilities? So far, the trust agenda is one massive spending spree, yet it's being talked about as if it were some radical experiment in small state liberalism. What will the trust administration say if her agenda doesn't go according to plan? That real trustonomics has never been tried? It won't wash, and it shouldn't. For the sake of the philosophy she purports to believe and the country she represents, she needs to get her agenda back on track. That was Kate Andrews. Next, Anthony Whitehead. If the world really does face a climate emergency, what ought you personally be doing about it? Should you, as increasing numbers of young people are doing, roam the streets at night letting down the tyres of SUVs. The fast-growing movement that calls itself the tyre extinguishers thinks this is an effective approach and has targeted thousands of SUVs in cities around the world. My hometown of Bristol, always quick to espouse a green cause, has seen at least 200 SUVs extinguished in recent weeks. Though they claim to be leaderless, the extinguishers have a Twitter account where you can keep up to date with their latest hits and a website that generously invites everyone to get involved. It even offers advice on deflating tyres, suggesting that a small bean, we like green lentils but you can experiment with couscous, be inserted into the valve before replacing the dust cap. SUV owners then wait to find flat tyres and a windscreen leaflet downloaded from the extinguisher's site which explains, you'll be angry but don't take it personally, your gas guzzler kills, millions are already dying from climate change related causes. It would almost be comical if the extinguishers were not so frighteningly sure of their moral superiority. Are you not worried about interfering in life or death situations? 
asked Channel 4 News of some masked and hooded men who had just deflated the tyres of a doctor's car at 3am in Bristol's Clifton Village. No, no, they replied, because we are helping to save the lives of billions worldwide. So, do they have a point? After all, many SUVs are unnecessarily big, require needlessly large amounts of material to make, take up a lot of road, and crucially consume more fuel than smaller cars. The extinguishers have been inspired partly by an alarming article published last December by the International Energy Agency, the IEA, which said, If SUVs were an individual country, they would rank sixth in the world for absolute emissions in 2021, which sounds bad until you delve into exactly what that means. All the cars in the world account for just 8% of man-made carbon emissions. The IEA estimates that 45% of new cars are SUVs and that the existing fleet produces about 2.5% of global emissions. Not a huge amount, but similar to the national emissions of Indonesia, arguably sixth in the league of global emitters. But what effect would swapping all these SUVs for something smaller really have on our atmosphere and climate? Suppose every SUV owner on the planet took the extinguisher's message to heart and immediately ditched their SUV for a Ford Fiesta. The IEA reckons smaller cars consume around 20% less energy than SUVs, so it is a reasonable guess that replacing every SUV on the planet with a hatchback would decrease global carbon emissions by roughly 20% of that 2.5%, or 0.5%. An unlikely maximum of half a percent is hardly world-changing. The extinguishers who get to bed late thinking they've done their bit to save the world should know just how little difference they're making. And it is not as if their actions don't have negative consequences. Tyres can be damaged by the weight of the car when deflated, and driving on flat is dangerous. Accidents will happen and deaths are possible. At the very least, people are inconvenienced, angered, and turned against the extinguisher's cause. Their leaflet explains, ignorantly, that SUV owners will have no trouble relying instead on public transport. Really? How about the Bristol trauma surgeon whose tyres were extinguished earlier this year? or the Bristol MS sufferer for whom bad days preclude walking to the bus stop and whose car had its tyres flattened last month despite displaying a disability badge. We seem to forget that cars are incredibly useful. They permit drivers to go almost anywhere they like, whenever they want, a rather brilliant, highly democratic freedom that we have somehow come to view as a terrible thing. Cars are also increasingly clean and efficient. Their bad press started in the days when there were no catalytic converters, 20 mile per gallon engines and leaded petrol. Today's machines, increasingly battery powered, are very different. In any case, the improbable scenario in which all the cars in the world were magicked away and all the massive and diverse functionality they now provide was replaced with nothing would, in saving that 8% of all carbon emissions, only take us back to around the situation in 2014. Because, despite our personal actions, like cycling to work or buying a Tesla, global emissions continue to rise. It's not that these things don't help at all, they just don't come anywhere near making a significant dent in the problem. A glance at the IEA graphs of who, where and what is mainly responsible will quickly show you where our focus should be. Since 2008, UK carbon emissions are down by 40%, the US is by 22%, and Europe's by 17% rather giving the lie to the extinguishers' claim that they have to act because our governments refuse to. Chinese emissions, however, are through the roof, up 48%, mainly the result of burning coal to generate power. Between 2008 and 2019, 
global carbon emissions from all sources rose by 15%. Chinese coal burning was responsible for almost half this rise. All the SUVs in Britain emit the same amount of CO2 as about three Chinese coal-fired power stations. There are now more than 1,100 of these in China, with dozens more under construction. Is deflating tyres in Clifton really going to save the planet? The extinguishers prefer not to see this. I suspect they would rather enjoy a misplaced sense of agency gained from the thrill of attacking cars in the dark. They cling to that popular green philosophy, if we all do a little, we can together do so much. This is a heartwarming motto, but one that can justify almost any action, no matter how ineffectual or misguided. As the late polymath and environmental writer, Sir David Mackay, put it, maybe if we all do a little, we will achieve only a little. That was Anthony Whitehead. And finally, Michael Simmons. Beep bop. The sound of the supermarket checkout annoys Morrison's felt the need to mute after the Queen's death is made possible by an invention which turned 70 this week, the barcode. On 7th October 1952, a patent was granted to American inventors Bernard Silver and Norman Woodland. Four years earlier, a shopkeeper in Pennsylvania went to the local university begging for help. He needed a way to get customers through his store quickly because logistics were stopping him meeting demand since typing in product numbers and prices into tills was cumbersome. An electronic system wasn't possible, said the university. Silver overheard the conversation, set up shop in his parents' apartment and enlisted Woodland. Woodland's eureka moment came when he was on a Miami beach drawing Morse code in the sand. Looking at his dots and dashes, he realised that differing lines or shapes could be used to encode different numbers. His initial design for the barcode, which consisted of concentric circles of varying width, was inspired by his swirls in the sand. The first attempts at implementation used an ultraviolet ink, but it rubbed off too easily. It'd have to be a printed design. It took another two decades before barcodes gained commercial success in supermarkets. In the intervening period, barcodes did find use on the railways, plastered across freight trains to be scanned by lights and sensors, but huge operating costs soon put a stop to that. Once laser technology made scanning possible, the codes finally made it into supermarkets when they were unveiled in 1974 in Troy, Ohio. As the store opened, a pack of Wrigley's chewing gum was the first barcoded item to be scanned, chosen to prove how barcodes worked even on much smaller packaging. Britain's turn came five years later on a box of Melrose tea bags. In 1979, at the Key Market supermarket in Lincolnshire, the box was swiped across the scanner and the price popped up on screen. A reporter interviewed serious-looking shoppers and staff about the invention. The store manager was pleased that it would enable electronic and automatic management of stock levels and ordering, but most importantly, it would help control pilferage. It wasn't just store managers who got excited. There is an episode of Tomorrow's World from 1993 in which it was explained that entomologists were sticking barcodes on the backs of bees to identify individual animals. A musician in Japan attached a signal generator to a barcode scanner so he could make music while doing his shopping. They've become crucial in medicine too. There are billions of possible combinations of codes. The supply is limitless. A 13-digit barcode can be presented 10 trillion different ways. That's enough for everyone on Earth to invent more than 1,200 different products, each with a unique barcode. It's easy to forget just how revolutionary barcodes were. Boris Yeltsin wrote that a visit to a Texan supermarket turned him off communism because he was so awed by the ready supply and choice of goods, the shelves packed from front to back. Perhaps that wasn't just a result of capitalism, but the efficiency of barcodes and the logistical problems they managed to solve. And that's everything for this week. 
If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week.